fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seven tales, on distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never Shawno, today marks 12 years since the passing of Andy Irons, mate. Uh, far out, hasn't that flown by? I can't actually get my head around it. It really doesn't seem that long ago at all. Uh, no, mate. No, definitely. I know, you know, um, when we got to, you know, five years after, it seemed weird. You know, we did a, I know we did a Surfing World issue back then, you know, um, five years on. Mm. And that felt, you know, um, time was a, it was a strange, you know, it was hard to grasp whether that had gone quickly or slowly. And, and then before you knew it, it was 10 and yeah, and it's now it's, uh, it's 12 years. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know whether the time's flown or whether it's gone slowly then, but it's still, yeah, it's still, yeah. I think everyone who was there at the, that point, you know, for them, it, it's still, uh, it's still pretty much a, you know, um, they're still as baffled by it now as they probably were 12 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, It's you say this in the story. I mean, uh, you're, thanks for coming on the show, first of all, Sean Doherty. <laughs> no worries, uh, mate. Yeah, editor, uh, publisher of, of Surfing World currently, but uh, a man who has, you know, written books, uh, many, many stories in on websites and magazines and all, all manner of uh, media all over the world. But, mate, uh, this must have been one of your toughest assignments because um, – you were over there in Puerto Rico for uh, this event, uh, there to cover Slater's tenth world title win, or, or inevitable tenth world title win, really. Um, but it ended up being one of the craziest weeks of your life, and certainly had to be one of the most difficult stories you ever wrote. Uh, yeah, it certainly wasn't. Um, <laughs> it wasn't the plan, that's for sure, mate. We were, you know, as my editor at the time, mate, you were. You know, you were cracking the whips to to do a front to back Kelly tenth world mm. title issue, and we've been working on that for like for months. Um, you know, we've been kind of following through Europe because we were in Portugal before we'd been in Puerto Rico, and in France before that, and and it was starting to look inevitable that Kelly was going to win the tenth. So that was the yeah, that was the the big storyline, and that was and you know at that point like it doesn't yeah doesn't kind of seem like it does. Now, but back then, the whole idea of someone winning ten world titles, um, yeah, you know, uh, it was still it was freaking everyone out. So we we were we were there for Kelly mm. basically, um, and we'd done you know we'd done long interviews with him, written this whole magazine front to back, and it was it pretty much just needed him to turn up in Puerto Rico and win it, um, and then you know I'd send the, the the last bits back, and and then you know you'd, you'd have your Kelly ten world titles issue, which was the plan, and then. Um, obviously, it, you know, that, that plan kind of uh, went out the window mm. halfway through the event. Mate, uh, you mentioned in this story, uh, it's called Rainbow's End. It, it ran in that issue with Kelly. We basically, yeah, had to just rearrange everything as you, as you would. But, um, yeah, I mean, 12 years, uh, you know, later, how do you reflect upon the moment that you found out? Oh, it's still the, the whole episode is, you know, still feels as crazy now as it probably did back then. Um, you know, uh, the the scene that, uh, you know, that afternoon when, you know, everyone's phone started lighting up um, with the news back from the States because um, we were staying at a um, – we were all in the, the one hotel basically mm. um, down in Agadir. Um, it was a converted military hospital and, and we're all in there together, all the surfers, all the contest crew. And, you know, suddenly you just, you looked around and after I'd got it, I got the news and then I looked around and, and you could see, you, you could actually see a couple of people just kind of shuffling around and, you know, staring off into space and people sitting in corners, 
crying and then you realize they just got the same news that you had um and it went through the whole place pretty quick um and and it was yeah it was because people were just trying to make sense of it you know there was like like how you know um and the detail there was no details really at that stage um the probably the only detail was that he that he wasn't you know he he wasn't in puerto rico Mm. that was the because everyone just assumed he was still there um and he wasn't obviously um he was you know he was in dallas on his way home so it was yeah oh like you know the the enormity of it considering who he was um and his connection to all those crew there and um you know really mate that first day was just was just wild you know mm. there were some there were some people really you know really coming apart yeah yeah i mean look, it was i guess what sort of amplified just how horrible this was is that Andy had put so much work into himself that year i think he'd started the year you know spending some time with Paco and Louie and uh and Gary sort of you know got stuck into a bit of life in in that tiny little village which is just pure surf village you know and fishing and ocean life and uh, that seemed to be really healthy for him and then he went up northwest and uh had that incredible trip to the desert where they got you know us i don't want to call it slater's ride but they got that crazy ride (laughs) absolutely cooking and and he and parko put on a clinic out there and and it just seemed like you know coming back on a tour after a few years off and some well-publicized um you know, stints in rehab and things like that, uh, that he was in a good place. And, and that was punctuated by the win in Tahiti that really, like, not many people saw coming. It wasn't like huge bombing chopes or anything, but he, he got a, a, a win, beat Kelly, his old foe in the semis. And, yeah, I think we ran a cover of him uh, just earlier in that year doing a sort of a, a top turn at, uh, in Indo on one of those little Indo jaunts he went on. And he was just surfing incredible like really different mm. like that the anger was definitely being replaced by something you know resembling a little bit more like just smooth calm flow if if, if that's even possible in his surfing but i mean you yeah. spent a, a good part of that year with him uh yeah what what were your what was your take on his sort of demeanor and his his attitude in in the months leading up to porto yeah yeah i what well, i think he'd made like he'd, he'd made peace with um, not so much with the tour. Like I, I, at that point, I reckon he could take or leave it pretty much. Mm. Um, like I, like I think the win at Tahiti shocked him as much as it shocked everyone else. Yeah. Um, because he was, um, lo- like you said, you know, he he turned the dial down a little bit on the, you know, on the the, the fire that you that had kind of come to to define him. Um, and yeah, you know, one Tahiti, which I think was you know was was a happy accident really. Mm. Um. Because you know, I think he'd been he'd had a bit of pressure to get back on tour. Uh, he'd had a year off already. Um, I don't think his heart was in it really. Obviously, Lindy was pregnant at that point, which was probably the the primary driver. Um, but like you said, he had kind of you know got himself together and 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 was way more chilled, way more chilled. Like we were hanging out in, you know, like he he did the, the two events leading into Puerto Rico. France and uh, and Portugal. I think he, he he basically. I don't think he made it made a heat. Yeah. You know? um, so he was the event before that. And he'd won it, then didn't win a heat. You know, in Port- Portugal or or France, and yeah, you know, that'd generally be the cue for him to to delaminate and you know. Um, but he, he made he was pretty pretty chilled. Like you know, we were, I remember talking to him in France. We, we were having a long chat about about the you know about the baby being born and him being ready for it. And, and he's, you know, super, you know, super excited and, mm. and really animated and, and, you know, um, and you kind of felt that, you know, you, you probably wouldn't see him back on tour. Um, once, you know, once the baby was born, mm. that, that he probably, you know, probably done his time there and, and was just going to go off into the next phase of his life. And, and he seemed pretty content with that and seemed pretty happy. And, um, yeah, like seemed, you know, um, didn't seem to be certainly experiencing any of the problems that had got him, you know, that mm. had knocked him out of orbit in the first place. Seemed pretty chilled. Um, and then obviously, yeah, which is probably why the Puerto Rico thing for most people who kind of who knew him and, and hung around him, like came out of, 
came out of the blue sky because it just, you know, they figured he was he was kind of just, you know, counting the days to get back home and, mm. and just get ready for the next phase of his life, which probably wouldn't involve the tour. You know, probably um, it was more that it was the start of the, his family phase. And, um, yeah, there it was, mate. Never quite got there. Mate, the uh, the tour is extremely small. Like uh, from the outside looking in, it, it looks like you know uh, this giant rolling professional, you know, like circus. I guess is what you call it. But when you're sort of moving around within it, it's very very small. And um, you know, you, you're constantly wearing two hats, uh, particularly if you're involved in administration, judging, journalism, or whatever. You know, because on one hand, you've you've got this one big family. And on the other hand, you've got to do your job. And so those sometimes, you know, the friendships and the bonds that you make are tested by the fact that, you know, someone's got to lose heats. Uh, you've got to report honestly about things and and whatnot. So putting your, your journalism hat on, like, can you just describe how hard it was for you to see all of you, your really good friends, you know, Parco, Mick, um, the, especially, you know, most of the Aussies, you'd been friends with them for 15 years. So you've got to be a, a leaning post in some respects uh, just because of those connections. But on the other uh, side of the coin, you've got to be a journo and you had to file this story. Can you just sort of discuss or explain how you did it? Because when you read this, mate, and people will get into it in a minute, but it is so beautifully done. Like, I just, I can't imagine being able to translate what was going on, uh, be on both sides of that coin, and also have a fucking deadline because the deadline was gnarly. Like, we were basically leaning on you to get this done so quickly like there was no room um i think it was like a three-day turnaround which just felt heartless uh in a lot of ways but it had to be done so can you kind of explain where you were when you were writing it and how you were sort of connecting with people sure yeah mate yeah i had an editor back home ride mars pretty hard to get this thing get this thing to print Um, ruthless (laughs) yeah but yeah mate but it was like obviously just a you know crazy scene the and the first couple of days after it um, you know, I think I had, you know, five days total to get it, you know, before the mag had to print and like the first couple of days, there's no sense talking to anyone, you know, um, pretty much the, you know, crew were just, were, were kind of melting in their rooms and, um, you know, they had, had a night, everyone got together for a night and, um, but still it was pretty quiet, you know, pretty subdued. Um, no one really, you know. No, no, I don't think many people have had to deal with anything on this level, you know, um, with someone obviously that pretty much all of them were, were super close to. And and so, you know, that was the raw couple of days. I could all like, you know, and for me, all I could do at that point was was just sit there and observe, um, mm. you know, because I knew, you know, um, but the, the other thing I kind of knew straight away was that, was it, that there would be, another story coming out at some point in time, you know, um, from the mainland uh, as to what had actually happened. And, and there was lit- literally all his crew, all his tight crew, none of them knew that he'd taken off. And then it was only on day one, really, you know, day into day one, um, that there's, you know, there was a few people, I remember t- chatting to Taylor Knox and he's gone like, you know, fuck, I just heard he, like he got to Miami and then, and had left his boards at the airport, just left them in the uh, oversized baggage and just mm. w- walked out, you know. And that's starting to go where they didn't want it to go. Um, they didn't want to think that this had happened, that that he might have fallen off the wagon. Um, mm. But but they just had to deal with the fact he was gone first and foremost. Um, and that was, you know, for, for, for all of them, you know, considering who Andy was and and his relationship with those people over a long period of time, and they all loved him. Um, and and so they had to deal with that, you know, before you know, before all the questions about how this had happened and why or whatever. Um, it didn't really change the fact for these guys that he'd gone. He was, you know, and they had to deal with that straight away. Um, and so that was a couple of days, and, and you know, just – you could just walk around the place and chatting to – you know, chatting to crew informally. Like, I – in the end, I, yeah, I, I think probably the day 
they actually had the paddle out for him because they called the comp off for two days, three mm. days, I think. Um, and then, yeah, had a paddle out. And that that's when I, you know, I felt that, you know, there was crew probably ready to, to have a bit of a chat and they'd, they'd had enough time to, to kind of get over the first, the first whack of this and, mm. um, be able to put some words together. And so, and I just started rolling tape with crew. Um, yeah, like I spoke to Roy, Roy Powers, cause he was, he was the other, the only other quine surfer on tour at that point. Mm. Um, and he was like, a you know, essentially you know, half a generation below Andy. So obviously just idolized him and yeah. And Roy was, Roy was pretty buckled, um, as you'd imagine, but yeah, they all were, um, you know, we just rolled tape, put it all together and ended up, um, yeah, we were just in a in that hotel room there. I was sharing a hotel with Reggae, room with Reggae Ellis, mm. um, and Reggae wasn't happy because we'd had to share a room. Um, so he complained to management and eventually got a, got a room to himself. But I, yeah, um, we posted up there for a day and and wrote it basically, just put it all together and and sent it off. Oh, mate! And then you know, like the last paragraph of this thing is, it just breaks you. It breaks your heart. It it gets you so badly. Like, how did you get um, access to Phil Lines, you know, before deadline to, to sign this thing off? Uh, well, I didn't speak speak to him. That was a, that he, Phil had spoken, I think, to the press in Hawaii. Right. I think he that quoted, um, I'm not sure where it had come from at the time. Um, uh, but yeah, that was, you know, the, the, the thing that made it, the, the fact this had happened forever and away from home mm. was the, was a bit of a you know uh, a breaker for that that changed everyone's kind of you know you know how things are you know you can tend to be more emotional when you you're somewhere else and um and and this you know the fact is it happened remotely you know in the middle of a tour event as well there was mm. that um which kind of you know that the event when yeah you know, eventually kicked off again but it felt kind of secondary um from that point but yeah, it was you know the yeah, look, the overriding emotion because a lot of guys by that stage had kids yeah. as well on tour. You know, a lot of guys had young kids, and that was you know the fact that he he'd been going home for the the birth of his son. You know, um, and that that as I was explaining earlier, I think everyone on tour kind of probably had that sense that that he was going to go home and and probably wouldn't come back to the tour, and um, and and they probably all accepted that was probably for the better. You know. Um, he'd been wrestling with it for ages and it, it felt like that new phase was going to move on. And that was the, you know, the poetic thing. And the, the horribly sad thing about it was that he was, you know, he was on his, literally on his way home to, to, to start that next, next chapter of his life and just, and just never made it. Man, I mean, well, um, yeah, I, I just went to, uh, Davo's memorial at Narrabeen on the weekend. It was just the most beautiful send off, but I mean, nothing hits home more than seeing, someone's kids you know walking a wreath down to the water's edge to place in the water there was uh Dakoa Davo's son who's I think early 20s maybe 20 but his daughter Lily Rose who's 11 and um oh man it's it's you know that's oh, the tragedy can only be compounded by seeing you know those left behind who have to deal with the fact that they're not going to have their their dad around you know it's, yeah uh, yeah yeah it's so heavy um I remember, um, I actually remember the, the day of the paddle out at, um, in Puerto Rico there. I mean, if you remember, Dave, I was like, you know, they, I remember we came out of the water, it went straight to the, um, went straight to the, the hospitality tent there in the bar, just grabbed the, grabbed a, a cause and just cracked it and goes, um, and he started talking to Andy. He looked mm. up the skies, going, mate, I know you love these. Yeah, you know, I love the silver bullets, mate. I'm here having one for you. <laughs> um, yeah. And he was, and he was talking how he got to the bar, you know, late that night on, his, you know, to have a drink with someone. There was no one else there, so he just, you know, went, just sat down there and and had a beer, you know, yeah. probably just talking to Andy again. That's mad, but, mate. Because um, Kelly, uh, like as you were saying, Davo had a, a crazy highlight mo- moment that year. He was having sort of his maybe second comeback as well, and uh, got all the way to the semis in Portugal, and just had Slater on toast, and Slater did the Kelly thing and did a big alley oop and. I don't know if you recall, but uh, you know he, he pulls the uh, the iron out of the fire as he always does, and Davo out the back, who's just been sort of blocked from his first final in you know a few years, just gives him the big salute, <laughs> just like <laughs> I, I, I do remember that. There you go. Yeah. 
Um, that was, mate, yeah, that was classic, mate. Yeah. So, I mean, we've lost a couple uh, of, you know, fucking family members, really, in terms of, of global surfing. Uh, but how has, has life changed or, or surfing changed in your eyes since Andy passed away 12 years ago? Uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, you look at, um, you know, the Andy and Davo and the troubles they'd had along the way, and it was fairly symptomatic of, of you know, uh, it wasn't out of place on tour going back, you know, um, going back 10, 20, you know, 30 years. Um, and you, and in a lot of ways, they were really like the last of that generation that where you could, where that kind of, you could probably have those, you know, those, those issues and, and bring them on tour with you and, and find ways to kind of, you know, um, not have a go public and, and all of that. And, the, you know, the wild days, the, the wild west was kind of, by that stage was, was, you know, it was pretty much the final days of it really. Mm. Um, you know, you were heading into a new era where it was, where it was, you know, with, with social media as a start, you know, you, there's all, there's leaks all through that. You couldn't really keep a secret kind of, you know, um, a secret life going on tour uh, in that way. And But you, you could and never was, paddle out with a hangover and, and- take down Felipe or Gabe or Idolo or yeah. John John Lowe's just yeah. it is not and, possible. No, you had a new generation of 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 completely dedicated, completely clean guys that were just, you know, that's what that's all they did was was surf eats. They you know, they didn't you know, they didn't get party at night. Mm. And um and so really in a lot of ways they were the you know really the last kind of guys of that generation. Um but it's yeah, it's um, doesn't make yeah you know, it, yeah it still makes it yeah you know, ultimately at the end of the day it's a hugely sad story that there was you know um, even for Davo got you know Davo got off to her and um, but I suppose in a way in many ways he might kind of didn't mm-hmm. as well you know that the, all that the stuff that had you know those wild days that had been ingrained in him and um, kind of that that was became who he was in the end and um yeah and you know and the and andy just yeah you know andy just never made it home well mate uh thanks heaps for your time uh yeah it's uh it's a sad anniversary this one it's um you know it's it's, it, it does give us a moment to sort of reflect on the genius of this uh you know really live wire character who brought far out so much the surfing just the belief and uh, the swagger and the absolute just determination to take kelly down I, there's no one's ever matched it since and, yeah um, and, that, and that was oh, and that was the other thing with yeah. it too was that, that's the other thing everyone was kind of you know flipping out of it obviously that you know the fact that Andy was gone was but the fact of when it had happened mm. um in the middle of the end as kelly's going for his 10th you know that like the final day when it came back on and and Kelly had to you know make a bunch of heats to to win that tenth title it was it was a pretty mad energy mm. you know um you know they'd had a few days to to kind of to wallow in it a bit by that stage and I think but by, by that point everyone was ready just to get back in the water you know and and I'd like obviously for Kelly imagine how how hard that was oh. you know the guy who'd kind of defined your career as much as anyone mm. um you know, uh, died in the middle of it. You know, in the just as you're about to have your your biggest moment, and and you kind of you know, you've got a party has got to surf the heat still and try and win it, and party is still trying to make sense of of you know him not being there, and and the whole. I just yeah, it seemed you know the universe was was just messing with people that week, mm. um, and yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I don't think you'll ever, ever have another week like that. Nah. That's for sure. Well, the story's called Rainbow's End. It was first published in Surfing World magazine, issue three hundred eight, December twenty ten. Thanks, Shawno. Let's uh, let's revisit that story right now. You're on your bonnet. Rainbow's End. Passing of Andy Irons and the Days That Followed by Sean Doherty. 
Kelly Slater describes this part of the Puerto Rican coast as Little Hawaii. He's not wrong. If everyone on Oahu's North Shore spoke Spanish, the two stretches of coast would be largely indistinguishable. The volcanic reefs, the juice in the swell, winds that defy prediction. Kelly first came here as a kid in 1985 and has returned here this week with a manifest sense of destiny. It will be a glorious second homecoming. If he makes the semi-finals of the Rip Curl Pro Search, he will win the world title. His 10th. It's a great feeling being here, he says. It feels like home. I drive an hour and fly two and I'm here. I woke up in my bed at home and I was here by 10.30 that morning. 25 years ago, I came here for the first time and I made a lot of friends. And it's a good feeling to be so close to home and there are a lot of old faces, a lot of old friends here. Kelly has come to Puerto Rico to make history. I never see Andy Irons in Puerto Rico. Kelly Slater never sees him. Few do. Andy is staying over in Isabella. He doesn't surf at all and never even makes it to the event site. When we are handed the note saying that Andy has withdrawn from his round one heat due to illness, it doesn't come as a great shock. A number of surfers, including Andy, are carrying viruses that have left them bedridden in the weeks leading into the Puerto Rican event. The contest doctors, however, have seen Andy. He has a fever and an accelerated heartbeat, and the symptoms he is exhibiting point to dengue fever, a disease he's contracted once before in Bali. It's a disease that's bad news if you happen to get reinfected at a later date with a second strain. They put him on a saline drip to rehydrate him, and he rallies in an effort to surf his next heat with fellow Hawaiian Dusty Payne, who himself is battling a toothache that will eventually require a root canal. But Andy is in no state to surf. He refuses a blood test and refuses to be hospitalised. Andy just wants to go home. With his wife Lindy heavily pregnant with their first child, he is feeling the call of Kauai. He doesn't want to be marooned here on an island in the Caribbean, deemed too sick to fly for God knows how long, with a whole ocean between he and his family. His instincts compel him to go home, and he boards a plane from San Juan to Miami. I sit down at breakfast with Mick Fanning and Brad Gerlach. Over pineapple, bacon and coffee, the conversation chicanes and pinballs between topics. Ger prefaces each twist with, well, here's the thing. We discuss in turn the concept of life coaches, questionable behaviour on tour in the late 1980s and surfing Cortez Bank, before discussing at length the ephemerality of life itself, how fleeting the flame of life can be and how quickly and indiscriminately it can be extinguished. Ger never backward in coming forward, asked Mick about his brother Sean, who was killed in a car crash a decade earlier. Mick calmly recalls the details of the night, the car being driven up Boundary Street, the accelerator being hit instead of the brake, the car hitting the Norfolk Island Pine, and his brother and friend being flung clear of the wreck. Mick having to break the news to his mum. Listening to Mick, it's clear he's made sense of his brother's passing and has harnessed Sean's spirit in the decades since to spur him on to greatness. It was inspiring stuff for 8am. The conversation then jumps to Malik Joyo's drowning at Pipeline and where we all were on the North Shore at the moment it happened. It's heavy going over a second cup of coffee and too morbid for a sunny morning in the tropics. Gurr chimes in. Geez boys, maybe we should lighten up a little. We walk off to our rooms, get our boards and go surfing. Minutes earlier, too sick to make his connecting flight to Honolulu, Andy Irons checks into room 324 at the Grand Hyatt Hotel at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. The text on my phone simply says, Andy Irons has just died. For the rest of my life, I'll remember where I was when I got that message. Mick Fanning got his call an hour before. I was at the movies and I got a phone call off Dingo back at home. I texted and said I'd ring him back. About a minute later, my mum calls. I sensed something might have been wrong, but I went, nah, I'll wait until the movie finishes. I texted her back, and she's replied, call me now, Andy Irons. I had a horrible sinking feeling right then. I knew something bad had happened. I thought it might have been a car accident, 
but when I was told he'd been found dead in a hotel room in Dallas, it just floored me. I rang Dingo back straight away and Kobe Abbott and answered and he told me the story. I was just like, what the fuck? I retreat to my hotel in Borinquen, a converted army hospital. Three doors up the corridor is Shay Lopez's room. I knock, unsure if he knows or not. He opens the door weeping and I turn and walk away without saying a word. I pick up the phone and call Joel Parkinson, injured back home in Coolangatta. He answers the phone, but there's only silence. I can hear his chest heaving. He's inconsolable, and he keeps repeating over and over. But what about his son? Joel's wife, Monica, has just given birth to their first son two weeks earlier, and Joel is wrestling with the thought of Axel Irons growing up without his father. I'm standing in the corridor, and as Joel and I speak, Mick comes out of his room. His eyes are glazed and bloodshot. I hand Joel to him, and Mick's hands shake as he takes the phone. Mick says he's probably just going to come home, and signs off a minute later with, Love you, mate. All over Borinkin, Isabella, and Agadilla, phones are ringing. Shrill tones, the harbingers of shitty news. Andy's friends are answering the calls, and having the ground give way beneath them. Roy Powers, the only other surfer on tour from Andy's home island of Kauai, misses his call. My mum called me earlier in the day, and I'd missed it. When I checked the messages, I heard all this crying and yelling and screaming. I couldn't even understand what she was saying. She was hysterical. So I've called her straight back and no one has answered. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what is going on? I called my brother and he told me. My brother is a year older than me and grew up with Andy. We just cried together. I walked downstairs and saw Taj, but I didn't want to tell him. How do you tell someone something like that? I grabbed a chair, curled up in it and hid my face from the world. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe my friend was dead. It was like my heart had been ripped out of my chest and was being held right there in front of me. That night, most of the surfers in the event gather around the bar at Villa Montana where they're staying. Mostly it's silence, but a few Andy stories are traded to cut the air. Growing up in Kauai, I lived down on the beach, recalls Roy, and he used to phone me every morning to find out what the waves were like. He had no idea how much I couldn't wait for that call every morning. And as cool as I tried to sound on the phone, when your hero calls you every morning for a surf check, for a grommet, that's the best feeling in the world. That first night was really hard, recalls Mick. Not knowing what to do. Not knowing the true story. Not knowing where everyone was. Just lost. Lost and numb. It's still only a matter of hours since the body of Philip Andrew Irons has been found in Dallas. The facts on the police report are cold and give little insight into how this tragedy has happened. Too ill to board his Honolulu flight, Andy checked into his room at 8.47 on November 1. The police were called at 9.43 the following morning after two staff performing a welfare check found his body tucked under the bed sheets. There's a backpack, an iPod, some clothes, two vials of prescription medication from his doctor, an empty bottle of water and a Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper. The circumstances are so unfathomable that it makes it even harder for everyone to come to terms with. Here was a guy, fearless, who mastered Pipeline and Chopu at their most ferocious. Here was a guy who'd lived so large, succumbing quietly and alone in an airport motel thousands of miles from the people he loved. Most of the young guys on tour have never had to deal with death at close range before, let alone the death of a friend in the middle of a tour event. The last tour surfer to pass away in the middle of an event was Mark Sainsbury back in 1992. Ironically, Kelly's first full year on tour. Sanger's death from a sudden brain aneurysm rocked his friends on tour, sending some into tailspins that would take years to recover from. For now, Andy's friends have to ride it out as best they can. It comes in waves, says Roy, of the pain in his chest. At some points, I'm celebrating him, thinking of some crazy time we had together, laughing. And then 10 minutes later, I'm curled up on the floor just bawling knowing that he's gone forever. I'm trying to get to that point where I can celebrate him. That's what he would want. He'd want us to be positive and really celebrate the life he had. Fred Pataccia wakes up howling. The second day, for most, will be tougher than the first. Yesterday's macabre dream will still be there when they wake up. Just now, a little more real. The paddle out is organised for 11am. And one by one, surfers file onto the beach at Middles. Mick hugs Taj and they both go to water. Roy is already in tears. 
underneath the Hawaiian flag, his legs give way and he buckles, head in hands, sobbing. Roy and Fred are hurting more than most, having grown up in Hawaii, idolising Andy and having travelled much of this year with him. Hundreds of surfers are in the water and Roy paddles into the middle of the circle to lead the tribute. His voice quavers. I swear I had better words, but they wouldn't come out, he recalls of the moment. But I felt like I wasn't really speaking to the people out there. I was speaking to Andy. I just wanted him to know how much I loved him and how much of a hero he really was to me. I guess coming from Kauai, we try to act tough. But in a moment like that, in all honesty, that guy, he opened a door for me and proved that you can make it from a little beach town on an island in the Pacific. And a lot of things came to me because I had him in my corner. And I got to surf with him every day, and I'll be forever grateful for that. I was blessed. What he did for me was beyond words. I never got a chance to tell him he was my hero, and I took that moment to tell him that. Kelly paddles out on a longboard with girlfriend Kalani, and even from 50 yards away, I can see that not even Kelly, Andy's great rival, is immune from the tears. Mick Fanning speaks and repeats a mantra over and over. Just look after each other. It's clear the fact his friend died alone is sitting heavily with him. The death of Andy Irons is tragic enough in itself, but the pending birth of his son amplifies the grief, particularly with Andy's friends who have young families themselves. Out in the water, Bede Derbidge paddles over and we hug. Bede's first child, Willow, was born just two weeks ago, and we tell each other how good it would be to be at home hugging our kids right now. Everyone's grief has a trigger, and mine is thinking of his son. While Andy's son will have an army of uncles, he won't have his father. I find myself looking out over the waves and thinking of my kids without a father. I think of my kids never having met me. Pretty soon, I'm sitting in a corner, bawling as well. The sadness hangs low in the air, but at least the paddle out has got people out of their caves and into the sun. The sadness, ever so slowly, is lifting. You don't want to drink alone at a time like this. It's the worst thing you can do, says Chris Davidson. So I went down the bar last night, and I was the only cunt there anyway. Davo was drinking a can of Coors Light and offers the can to the sky. It was his favourite. Loved the silver bullets he did. Having one here for you, mate. Fred leaves for Hawaii that afternoon, but Roy wants to stay and surf the contest. The surfers have decided the show will go on. They are going back to the one thing they know. In light of Andy's passing, this event could now mean everything. A win here could become a perfect tribute in much the same way as Tom Carroll's win at Pipeline in 1987 was just a day after his sister's death in a car accident. Or it could become a black circus, taking on little meaning when weighed against the death of a friend. And then there was the not insubstantial matter of Kelly Slater's 10th world title that had been consigned to a sidebar by all of this. I put it out of my mind, recalls Kelly later. When something like that comes along, it gives you perspective. And I had some grieving to do first before I was ready to even think about it again. The numbers say little about Andy Irons, not in the same way they do for Kelly. They tell nothing of the swagger, the audacity, and the magnificent fire that blazed inside the guy's chest. They tell nothing of his amplitude or colour. There was never any doubt with Andy Irons. No beige or grey. Never any bullshit. Andy surfed on pure instinct. His good friend Joel Parkinson, describing as the most emotional surfer I've ever seen. If Andy put his mind to it, there was nothing he couldn't do on a wave. He was the kind of guy you watched surfing and felt like you knew him, which explains why people he'd never met from places around the world he'd never been were breaking down in tears upon hearing news of his passing. This year, apart from Tahiti and a few scattered heats elsewhere, it was clear that Andy's trademark intensity had cooled. It meant he lost a few more heats than he would have liked, but it also meant that when he did lose, it didn't gnaw at his soul the way it used to. There was a more freewheeling, fun side to him on tour this year. And while we may not have seen the best of his surfing this year, we saw the best of him. I shared an afternoon beer with him after he'd lost in the early rounds to Luke Munro in France. And he looked at me and said, Can you imagine me doing this back in the day? Hanging around with a beer after I lost? No way, brah. I'd be too busy breaking boards. I don't think he had the super focused vibe this year, says tour rookie Matt Wilkinson. But he was super friendly and really helpful to us young guys. He's been a hero of mine since I was young. And to get on tour and have him here was really special. He spent a fair bit of time with me this year, and we became pretty good friends. We had a heat in Tahiti, pretty funny heat. I needed a score right at the end and got a wave. The score didn't come in for a while, and as we waited, Andy shook my hand and went, You know, if anyone out here beats me, I hope it's you. I thought that was pretty cool. 
Wilco fell 0.2 of a point short, and Andy would go on to meet Kelly in the finals. It would be the last heat they'd ever surf together. Andy not only beat Kelly, but went on to win the final. Kelly was seen in the channel after the siren, holding up four fingers, gesturing to Andy. It seemed strange at the time, but it later came out that it was Kelly saying to him, Hey, after that, you've got a fourth world title in you. Like the rest of the tour, to a man, it seemed Kelly also felt closer to Andy this year than ever before. Kelly Slater and Andy Irons were united by fate for a decade. They were the yin and yang, two halves of the same thing. Their careers were tangled together, and neither could have reached the dizzying heights they did without the other being there. They hated each other at certain stages, and loved each other. Although that love was famously unrequited by Andy on the Sands of Pipeline back in 2003. It was a dynamic that intrigued the surfing populace and almost single-handedly sparked a pro-surfing renaissance that continues to this day. Now, one was about to achieve immortality just three days after the other passed away alone in a hotel room in Dallas. We were in the midst of the most tumultuous week pro-surfing had ever seen. Sometimes when you have that much stuff going on, you don't think about your surfing, offers B. Derbage. You just do it. As if the attendant drama of the week wasn't enough, Bede has to also contend with his newborn daughter back home in Australia being hospitalised with a serious respiratory infection. I tried so hard to get home. Willow was really sick, but it was almost impossible to get out of here because a lot of the flights were grounded. But in the end, it almost started to feel like I was being told that I needed to stay. There was no flights, and then Willow started getting better. And I sort of felt like I was being told, this is where I needed to be. When the contest reconvenes, Mick is drawn against Roy. The two guys left in the field closest to Andy. I wouldn't have wanted to have surfed that heat against anyone else, says Roy, because I know how much Andy cared about him and respected his surfing. In a weird way, it felt like it was me, Mick and Andy out there surfing. I just kept feeling Andy out there. It's weird. And I don't want to sound crazy, but I kept hearing his voice, you know. I fell on a couple of turns and I just said to myself, that was so lame, laughing to myself. And I could almost hear him laughing with me because that's what he would have been doing. That's what we did as kids. He was so much better than everybody. But when we tried something cool in front of him, either we made it or we didn't. And he'd always laugh and hoot. The final two days of the event take the feel of an Irish wake. For the most part, the surfers detach themselves from ratings points and self-interest and just go surfing. There is a collective energy on the beach at Middles as the guys stop mourning Andy and instead begin surfing for him. What results is some of the most scintillating hi-fi surfing the tour has ever seen. Led by Dane Reynolds, guys like Taj, Wilco, Geordie and Owen all put in watershed performances. Each turn is accompanied by whistles and cheers by the boys. Every surfer is clapped back into the competitors' area. The guys who lose hang around and feed back into it. Wow, that's the first time I've ever finished last and been clapped in, quips Taylor Knox. They finally start laughing and some black humour starts to surface. When Adriano D'Souza hassles the shit out of Kelly for an entire heat, Someone comments that Andy must be pulling some strings up there, laughing all the way. The final day is fated to be Kelly's. Over the course of his career, he's craved a sense of theatre, thrived on surfing big heats and something to engage him emotionally. Well, there is no bigger emotional whirlpool than the one he finds himself in right here. And no bigger stage. For while his peers have been free to grieve, Kelly has been torn. He's invested the past 20 years of his life to get him to today. He wants to let it all go, but he has one more heat to make before that can happen. He paddles out against Adriano de Souza, knowing a win will not only give him a 10th world title, but it will also allow him to take the cap off the feelings he's bottled up over the past three days. It's all over within eight minutes. After having hassled Kelly so heavily the previous day, Adriano inexplicably gifts him two gems at the start of the heat. Kelly promptly turns them into a 9 and a 9.87 and Kelly's entourage begins celebrating. And just as you sense Andy may have had something to do with Adriano's antics yesterday, you also feel that maybe it was Andy who put Kelly onto those two waves. I say to Kelly's mum, Judy, that she must be proud. She replies, Yeah, I tell him he's got to retire after this because I've only got ten fingers. She holds up both her hands. And you know what he said? He said, But mum, you've got ten toes as well. Kelly duly dedicates his world title to his great rival and sheds a tear for him. Several dozen emotions compete for control of Kelly's face. I just have to soak it all in. It's been a big week. To have Andy pass away, you know. 
I'm not really kicking myself, but I think now that when he didn't show up for his first heat, I think maybe I should have gone to his hotel and seen how he was. I'm really bummed I didn't get a chance to see him. Then to win the title, obviously it's a balance of emotions, but it doesn't really balance. With the world title in the bag, Kelly grabs a black marker and writes AI on the nose of his board before paddling back out. With the job done, it can now finally be all about Andy. As Bede and Kelly sit out there ready for the final to start, a minute's silence is observed. A flashback to an early morning on Joanna Beach in 2002. Joel Parkinson and Andy Irons are out in the water, about to surf the Bells final. Israel Kamakawio Ole's haunting version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow drifts across the sand as a minute's silence is observed for local surfer Mark Pribic, who died in a car crash the week before. Andy went on to take the final and went on to win his first world title that year. On the sands of Puerto Rico, eight years later, the silence is now for Andy. A rainbow arches across the horizon. The Hawaiian flag flutters lazily and 5,000 Puerto Ricans who have screamed in delight all day fall reverently silent. The final starts and Kelly's perfect point in time is complete when he scores a 10 en route to winning the event as well as the world title. Just like Mick Fanning, Kelly has dealt with death before. His father's passing in 2003, in league with his loss to Andy at Pipeline that year, saw his life turned on its head. It put him on a path to self-discovery that would lead him here to Puerto Rico and the title of the greatest surfer of his generation and several more generations to come. In the days after Andy's passing, Kelly recounts to friends the story of a dream he had where he was in a plane that was crashing. With the ground coming up to meet him, he fights his natural instinct to wake and save himself. Instead, riding it out to see what lies on the other side. As the darkness nears, the Puerto Rican crowd trudge home through the mud. Few probably realise just yet the gravity of what they've witnessed today. These three days in Puerto Rico will be scrutinised, mythologised and will hear the echoes for years to come. It's not often you watch something happen in front of your eyes and realise you're watching history being made. And yet, there's still a feeling that we're going to wake up one morning and discover the whole thing was a cosmic sleight of hand. It really makes you believe that there are greater forces at work, says Mick. I'm still finding it hard to believe it all happened. As I collect my board and join the long march in the mud, I look down on the floor and there it is. The paper is still clean and crisp. A handwritten note sitting there on the floor in the surface area undisturbed for a week. Andy Irons has withdrawn from Heat 7 with illness. Andy finally makes it back to Kauai and into the arms of his family. His father, Phil, gets a last chance to hold his eldest son. Held my son kissed him. Heaven almighty. He could have got up and left with us if he was still there. He was so perfect. The Irons family has lost a son, brother, husband and father, while the islands of Hawaii and anyone who has ever surfed has lost a hero and a friend.